Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Part 2, Episode 10, Ushering, 1931. By the early 1930s, the members of Third Church of Christ Scientist had taken ushering to a new level of orchestration. This was characteristic of large Christian science churches in this era. To clearly explain to everyone on the usher staff every detail of every role and procedure throughout the service, Third Church produced a 22-page booklet called Guide for the Ushers, complete with index and fold-out map of the foyer and auditorium. This manual would be updated and reprinted periodically for many decades. The first edition began with this quote from the Bible. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. 2 Chronicles 30, 16. The ushers were expected to be dressed in their uniform and ready to serve at least half hour before each service. The men were instructed to wear Oxford gray double-breasted coat buttoned properly, gray striped trousers, black shoes, plain black socks, black and white striped tie, white shirt, turned down white collar. In summer, they wore gray or beige slacks and white shoes and socks. They were not allowed to wear any pins or emblems, but they were given each a fresh white carnation to pin on their jacket. The ushers at this time were all men, except for one woman at each service. In 1931, Maud Condon served as the female usher on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, and Ruth A. Densmore on Sunday evenings. The female ushers were required to wear plain dresses or suits in good taste, no sleeveless tops, dark hues in winter, and pastel or white hues with white shoes in summer, and white gloves at all seasons. Before going to their post, most of the ushers gathered in the usher room off the foyer. The guide for ushers explained that a 10-minute period of consecrated metaphysical work preceding each service is necessary to the success of harmonious and fruitful ushering. According to the rotation schedule, which was posted in the usher room, one usher read selections from the Bible or the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, no more than 12 to 15 lines. They were all at their assigned posts 15 minutes before the service, ready to direct in the appropriate way as explained in their guide. People, especially strangers coming into our church edifice, often wait to be guided. A loving, welcoming thought, expressed by a smile and a directing hand, will almost immediately lead them to go in the right direction. Therefore, ushers should not hesitate to show people where and when to go. 
at the slightest sign of uncertainty, ushers should move to direct guests. The ushers were also greeters and connectors, and as such were expected to learn the names of members and visitors. By learning the names of our people, the guide explained, introducing himself to the stranger and presenting the latter to others, each usher may break down a prejudice or complete a healing. Ushers were expected to study the bylaws of Third Church and the Mother Church so they could answer any questions about the church from anyone attending. However, in extending the desired warm welcome to those attending services, they needed to exercise some social restraint. Refrain from unnecessary conversation with guests or with each other during your time on duty, they were advised. Never forget, however, to be kind courteous, cordial, expressing the joy, graciousness, and love of a true Christian scientist. There were 22 usher stations, plus a head usher and assistant head usher. All ushers were encouraged to carefully study all the stations and duties. They had to know them all because they rotated through the different positions. Numbers 19, 20, and 21 in the entryway were the first ushers most guests would see. They assisted people with the umbrella racks. Numbers 11, 13, 16, and 18 in the foyer were to extend a cordial welcome to all who enter, answer inquiries briefly, and then point to the coat room or to the nearest auditorium stairway. Numbers 14 and 15 worked at the literature table and, when needed, helped with the coat check. Tactfully draw men aside to clear waiting line and eliminate congestion in front of window, they were instructed. Number 17 kept the front literature rack replenished and stayed in the foyer during the service if it was being used for overflow seating. Number 12 put the usher's room in order after the preparation meeting and then guarded the door to the readers' rooms to prevent intrusions. The private signs on the doors leading to the readers' rooms did not lessen the need for vigilance. This position also went backstage to open the door for the readers as they exited the rostrum at the end of the service. Number 22 stood at the side door on 50th Street by the basement-level Sunday school. Numbers 1 through 10 were upstairs in the auditorium. They managed seating, including the section reserved for latecomers, a job that required tactful diplomacy. They were also responsible for staff synchronization during the collection, the proper execution for which they were told in the usher guide. If the work is preceded by careful metaphysical work, and accompanied by an exact knowledge of the method for its performance, it will express harmony, beauty, accuracy, and order. Immediately after the sermon, four ushers formed a line across the back of the auditorium. When the organ began playing the offertory music, four more ushers formed a line in the front of the auditorium. The ushers facing the congregation waited for the rear line to come halfway down the aisles and turn around in unison. 
Then, with collection bags in hand, they all began to work the aisles, keeping an eye on the head ushers coordinating hand signals. To help their unified performance, there were small yellow dots on alternating pews to mark where the collection bags would enter the rows. The bags were received again on the undotted pews. There were brass tags on the floor where the usher was to stand and wait at the end of each row to take the collection bags as they were passed down the pews. The guide provided very specific instructions. The routine for ushers working forward half of auditorium requires approximately three steps forward to enter bags, then one step backward to receive bags. These movements should always be in unison. Always carry bags in curve of left arm, passing them with right hand. Step off with left foot first. In 1931, the amount being collected on Sundays at Third Church was not enough to cover their expenses. They had gotten behind in paying their bills, even with no longer having a mortgage to pay. Even with two Sunday services that had such full attendance that they sometimes had to set up folding chairs in the foyer. Having dedicated the church only two years earlier, they had since fallen back into debt. They had borrowed to pay normal operating expenses, and now they were trying to pay off loans again. Other branch churches in Seattle were facing similar financial shortfalls. Announcements read by the first reader at church services often included a statement of financial need, expressed in the brief, understated style characteristic of Christian scientists. For example, a simple statement that the general fund required twice the amount of the usual collection to meet expenses, or three times, or more. This financial stress was probably common for churches throughout the country, Everyone was feeling the ongoing financial impact of the economic depression. For branches still carrying large mortgages, as was still the case for many of the Christian Science churches in Seattle, the situation may have been even more difficult. In discussions about how to balance budgets and conserve funds, church salaries were being lowered. And once again, branch churches were considering withdrawing from some or all of the joint activities. It was at this moment, when financial strain seemed to prevail, that church officials in Boston announced that they needed larger quarters for the Christian Science Publishing Society. They planned to build an 11-story neoclassical stone office building that filled an entire city block. Adjacent to the Mother Church, it would house the Christian Science Monitor offices, a printing press, and other publishing activities. It would also have within it a three-story room containing an illuminated stained glass globe that visitors could walk through on a glass bridge as a symbol of the church organization's international focus. This novel extravagance that was conceived by the building architect, Chester Lindsay Churchill, called the Maparium, would become a popular Boston tourist attraction. Design sketches of the proposed publishing house were published in the Monitor on April 17, 1931. 
It was estimated to be a $4 million project, an astounding price tag, even in a good economy. Branch Church funding payments, the Christian Science Board of Directors confidently expected will be forthcoming in due course so that the traditions of the past will be upheld and the building be paid for when completed. In the notice in the Christian Science Sentinel about the building fund, the directors quoted from Mary Baker Eddy's words of thanks for gifts from Christian scientists in 1908, cheering unity among brethren and love to God and man. All the branch churches were once again being asked to contribute significant funds. Besides meeting a need for larger facilities, in expectation of continuing growth of the Christian science movement, the Boston church officials were challenging the mindset of fear. As the Boston Herald later put it, the general sense of depression which had apparently settled over most of the world. The call for funds once more brought to the attention of the public the loyalty with which followers of the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy responded to any call for support of the movement she founded. The new building project in Boston made national news. Even the Seattle Times reported on these expansion plans. Work on this new structure will begin at this time to aid in relieving the unemployed, Seattle readers were told, the recently announced new publishing house is necessitated by the growth in volume of publication. The Seattle Times shared that the Christian Science periodicals were being distributed in 82 countries, and there were now more than 2,500 Christian Science branch churches and 40 university organizations. 79 new churches had formed within the past year one more each in Africa and Asia, two in South America, four in Australia, 25 in Europe, including the first Christian Science Church in Poland, and 45 more in North America. All of the churches were being asked to support the Boston Building Project. The Mother Church wanted 100% support from the field through demonstration of God's abundance. They wanted the widow's might and the Sunday school children's pennies and nickels so that every Christian scientist would feel that they had helped to build the publishing house. Branch churches were asked to hold special business meetings to decide how much they could commit to giving over a period of 18 months. At these meetings, every member was given a card to anonymously write an amount of individual commitment beyond his or her normal monthly church contribution. The cards were collected, the amounts added up, and that sum became the financial pledge of the branch church. There were special contribution envelopes printed up by the thousands in color selections to harmonize with the hymnals in the pew racks. There was also a mass meeting of all local church members held in the First Church Auditorium to discuss the Publishing House Project, presided over by Washington Committee on Publication, Byron B. Haviland. Mr. Haviland later explained the response of his own branch church. 
At the time, Third Church was 15 to 20 days behind in paying its bills. Still, it didn't hesitate. According to the meeting minutes, members of the University District Church voted to commit to sending $150 monthly. According to Mr. Haviland, Third Church never lacked from that day on. Haviland had faced huge financial shortfalls during the Third Church construction project, another time when the Mother Church requested commitments of financial support from branch churches. In his career as a Christian science practitioner, Haviland developed an enduring reputation for sure proofs of supply and healing during the Depression. He would soon become a Christian science teacher. Decades later, when telling a younger generation about the decision to support the publishing house, he emphasized, we have to do first things first. As interpreted by his listeners, his point was that in supporting the Mother Church, we would be demonstrating supply instead of lack, and our own needs would be met. To that end, the Board of Third Church encouraged its members to devote themselves to specific prayer, so that our church may be found free of debt and more fully prepared to grasp the opportunities before us of furthering the cause of Christian science. The Board called a special meeting of members immediately following the Wednesday evening testimony meeting to arouse the members as to the need of financial support to meet the demand of the present times, to point out as nearly as possible what our beloved leader, Mary Baker Eddy, meant by giving does not impoverish us in the service of our Maker, neither does withholding enrich us. To keep the goal in front of the whole congregation, a framed architectural rendering of the publishing house building was hung in the church foyer and in their reading room. When the collection baskets came through the pews each Sunday, what was put in by each individual was private, their own choice at that time. To make their contribution, they may have had to overcome fear and limitations. Their contribution may have represented a hard-sought demonstration of God's supply. No one would be watching what anyone contributed to the collection bag or keeping account of individual contributions. No lists of names of contributors would ever be published. No matter how much someone contributed, nothing would ever be named in their honor. Each contribution was a voluntary offering of selfless love, a matter between the giver and divine principle. The head usher at that time at Third Church, the one who orchestrated the collection, was Ross Perry Williams, a banker who had graduated with a business degree from the University of Washington 10 years earlier. While in college, he was a captain of the varsity football team and during the war, he was in the Navy. He put his team skills to use, managing the ushers and the collections. As an assistant vice president at University National Bank, 
he could certainly handle assisting the church treasurer in counting the collection after each service. Sunday collections were the church's main revenue source. It was carefully counted and deposited in the church's bank account. But in this era of hard times, even counting cash and depositing it took extra organizational effort because of the danger of theft. There were gangs of burglars and muggers who were targeting churches. Starting in the year 1931, Third Church purchased a burglary and hold-up insurance policy that they maintained throughout the Depression years. They moved the counting room down to the basement and established a new route for taking the money out of the building to the bank, never through the Sunday school door, a relatively unattended side door by the back alley. Mr. Williams and the treasurer needed to be ever on guard with the cash, and all the ushers needed to be constantly watchful of everyone coming and going and all the activity happening in and around the church. The ushers doubled as security guards. The ushers were expected to prepare themselves for their shift through prayer, as explained in a Sentinel article, Ushering, a Sacred Privilege, which was quoted in the Third Church Guide for the Ushers. Prayer strengthens the usher who turns to the one and only mind for guidance, As the vision of God's unerring direction unfolds, ushering becomes more poised, more orderly, more dignified, more inspirational, and the ushers thus express more of the qualities of divine mind, alertness, obedience, faithfulness, exactness, unselfishness, thoughtfulness, love, spontaneity, discernment, All these qualities are necessary to good ushering. The guide included a 1908 letter from the ushers of the Mother Church to Rev. Mary Baker Eddy. Beloved leader, informally assembled, we, the ushers of your church, desire to express our recognition of the blessings that have come to us through the peculiar privileges we enjoy in church work. We are prompted to acknowledge our debt of gratitude to you for your life of spirituality, with its years of tender ministry. Yet we know that the real gratitude is what is proved in better lives. It is our earnest prayer that we may so reflect in our thoughts and acts the teachings of Christian science that our daily lives may be a fitting testimony of the efficacy of our cause in the regeneration of mankind. And Mrs. Eddy's reply. Beloved ushers of the Mother Church of Christ Scientist, I thank you, not only for your tender letter to me, but for ushering into our church the hearers and doers of God's word. The Guide for Ushers also included a benediction from the Board of Directors at Third Church of Christ Scientist Seattle. May these pages guide you in the loving service which you are privileged to render this church built on divine principle, love. Through study of the quotation from the writings of our revered leader, 
you too may be led to earn her approval by your works. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.